With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. You're listening to the Be The Bridge podcast with Latasha Morrison. I am so excited about our next guest. Um, We met a few years back in an event at North Park University. And now, um, I think last year we met again at a conference um, hosted by Brenda Salter McNeil. So I love her work. And I was just telling her that everybody that I'm talking to is referencing her work. Um, She is a brilliant mind, a leader, and a gift um, to the body. And her name is Andrea Smith. And so we're going to call her, for the sake of this podcast, Andy. She likes Andy. And so she is the coordinator of Evangelicals for Justice and a board member of the North American Institute for Indigenous and Theological Studies. She is the co-editor with Mae Cannon of Evangelical Theologies of Liberation and Justice and an author of an IVP author of Unreconciled from Reconciliation to Racial Justice and Christian Evangelicalism. She has another book, um, Conquest, Sexual Violence, and American Indian Genocide, and the editor of The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, Beyond the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. She is the co-founder of Insight, Women of Color Against Violence, and the Boarding School Healing Project. Let's welcome Andy Smith. Wow, you are doing some incredible work. Talk about justice right here. You are like the epitome of what we talk about with all the work you're doing from um, the boarding school healing project. That's like a whole nother conversation that I would love to have um, with you maybe at a later time. And then women of color against violence. Um, You know, just 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 even that I was just listening to some of the reading some of the um instances of of domestic violence and child abuse that are up right now because of the shelter in place and a lot of us think Mm -hmm. of that as a place of safety but for so many people it's not um and Mm -hmm. so yeah so there's so many things that i would want to talk to you about but today we are talking Mm -hmm. about solidarity and what that can look like among people of color. Is that possible? And some of you may be listening to this and thinking like, well, I thought all y'all got along. (laughs) You know, you're all people of color. You all get along, you know. Um, It's not true. We're not a monolithic group. We are very different with different cultural expressions and different lived experiences, and we intersect differently. So I wanted to bring some voices on to really talk about this because, like I said, I don't feel like we can heal what we conceal. And so we have to talk about these things and get them out in the open in order to forge a path forward. And so, um, Andy, could you tell the audience just a little bit about yourself and your work that you're doing? Uh, sure. Well, I can just maybe speak to how I ended up in this situation uh, now. Okay. So I, uh, from my Christian journey, I became a born-again Christian when I was 16. 
uh, Southern Baptist, very fundamentalist, but, and I still am Southern Baptist, um, but for some reason, the, uh, I was brought to Christ by my sister, who was not politically conservative, so I didn't, I got conservative theology, but it didn't come with conservative politics, and that kind of led me to leading a slightly divided life, where my politics divided, went kind of separately from my theology, so I'd go to church, hear things, you know, and but then on the side, I would be involved in a lot of more radical organizing politics, particularly that for Native peoples and people of color, generally speaking. And the issue I've worked primarily around is violence against Native women and women of color. Um, so I tended to have to be quiet about being a Christian in some circles and then be quiet about my politics in other circles. And it was maybe 10 years ago when Evangelicals for Justice formed, I started to find a place where I could bring the two together, where I could... I mean, it was always together in my head. Does that make sense? Like when I was doing organizing, my theology was always shaping how we would do the work, but it wasn't something I could easily vocalize without people saying, what's wrong with you? But I finally found a group of people that I could bring the two together and talk about how our theology and politics could come together. Um, and then in terms of the issues around solidarity, uh, that came from just a lot of trial and error with the emphasis on error. <laughs> so... Uh, so one example would be um, I was uh, the, one of the Women of Color Caucus representatives for the National Women's Studies Association, and they fired their only Women of Color staff person, Ruby Sales, who people might be familiar with. Yes. And so we organized to basically protest that. And so we developed this coalition. I didn't know what I was doing. I was very young. This doesn't make sense. So I kind of got stuck in the center of it when I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot of lessons <laughs> from those right. mistakes. But to make a long story short, we, we worked together when we were protesting NAAA. But after that, we said, well, let's start our own association. And that association lasted for like a week <laughs> before we just ended in a total smackdown. When we realized the only thing we had in common was being mad at white women, but th- we didn't have any common political visions and we were almost literally getting into physical smackdowns. Mm-hmm. So that's been my experience. I've been in so many smackdowns, like the United Nations. Uh, there was a literal smackdown between indigenous peoples and uh, black peoples over the issue of reparations. Uh, as I remember, uh, was, uh, black people were saying we should have reparations in form of land in the Americas. And the indigenous people said, or one person said in particular, you can have the mule, but the 40 acres are ours. Uh-huh. We've had a lot of, I, I mean, at an Insight conference, we had a big smackdown between Native people from Chicana uh, feminists. So after, and that's smackdown. Uh, that's when I learned we had to kind of rethink our strategy yeah. for solidarity. Right, right. Because if we don't know each other's story, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes we skip over that whole indigenous story, not realizing um, mm-hmm. the land that we stand on and who it belongs mm-hmm. And so I think that's important, but I think a lot of the conflict, why I wanted to have this story, because I've Mm -hmm. seen some of that happen in conversations. And then as I'm learning history, I'm like, wow, I had no idea, you know, because we don't learn this in school, you know? And so I think Mm -hmm. it's important. What do you think solidarity could look like in this space of racial justice between black and indigenous people of, of color? Like, what could this look like? We, we, we know we'll, we'll get to the identifying some of the things that divide us, but what could solidarity look like? Well, what I found 
where solidarity most likely can happen is when you don't presume to begin with. And actually you presume that we're enemies. So uh, Insight is uh, the first project where I felt like we were actually able to have some solidarity and we have some solidarity by learning my lessons from the NWSA walkout and saying, let's just not presume we actually get along. Mm-hmm. Let's presume we don't know each other's histories. We don't, we're at, that we're actually complicit in each other's oppressions even mm-hmm. because we don't know that. So we're doing things to hurt each other. And let's, let's recognize that that is our starting ground. And then if we recognize that as our starting ground, then we make a co- political commitment to do otherwise. We say, I'm going to learn how to be different with you. I'm going to start to learn your history. I'm going to start to receive critique that I'm hurting you. That makes it easier to get through together because we're not disappointed. I think a lot of people call solidarity things break down because people come in thinking somebody's going to have your back. And when they don't, you storm off. But if you go in there thinking they're not going to have my back, but I'm going to intentionally try to create, and I don't have your back. Like I have to go in thinking I have your back, but I really don't. Right. And, but I'm going in there open to, to learning how I can have your back Mm. and, and talking to you, how you can have my back. And then if you do that, then you at least have a shared political commitment to that process. But you then have more patience when things break down because you're not surprised because the system is set us up to be complicit in each other's oppression. Mm. So we shouldn't feel like we're horrible people. We know that we're just doing what we've been programmed to do, what we've been set up to do, but we will try to do something different. You just said something profound. You said the system has set us up to be complicit in each other's oppression. Mm -hmm. And I Mm -hmm. think a lot of times we don't understand how we are oppressing another group or, um, you know, how our ideologies oppress others. What history contributes to this divide when you say that, like, um, we're complicit in that? In what ways? Let's name it and name some ways um, so that we can help people, so that we can begin to do the work on ourselves, so that way we can do the work together. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's numerous ways, but I could say from, say, take Native people, for instance, if you look at a lot of the um, court decisions where Native peoples are trying to prove um, that they should not be enslaved, a lot of the ways Native gets um, defined as proving you're not Black. Yeah. Right. So legally, Indigenous identity gets created to be anti-Black, mm. right? That those have to be mutually exclusive categories. So it's not a surprise, is it, that we would have anti-Blackness in Native communities. And we all, as we know, we have slavery of black peoples in some native communities. So that's, that's, that, but that didn't just happen, right? That was set up right. for native peoples to invest in the colonial project. Also, how do native peoples are kind of at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. How do you get by in that situation? Well, as do many poor people, you join the military. Mm-hmm. So native peoples are the most represented per capita in the U S military where we are killing <laughs> Uh, racialized people everywhere, which is then contributing to people needing to leave their countries to come here as immigrants. Mm-hmm. Right? So we are complicit in that process, too. Is that just because we were born that way? No, right? But that, that was set up by colonial conditions that deprive Native peoples of being able to assist themselves. Uh, Non-Native peoples, I mean, how do people think to survive here? They think, we would like some land, <laughs> right? Or we want to invest in U.S. democracy, but we don't think about well, U.S. democracy cannot exist without indigenous genocide. So we essentially are 
conditioned to want indigenous genocide. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, not explicitly, but implicitly in what our kind of desires for freedom look like. Mm-hmm. So I think if we, and, that's, and I feel the issue that happens is that when we think of oppression, we tend to equate that with being good. Yeah. <laughs> like if somebody is oppressed, is better. And so then, therefore, if somebody calls us out, we're like, you're saying I'm a bad person. And, and no, being oppressed doesn't make you a better person. It makes you just makes you oppressed. So if I so if we don't equate kind of being oppressed with a higher moral ground, right? Mm-hmm. It's just kind of this. Then I think there would just be less drama <laughs> about mm-hmm. saying like, look, this is just how the set, system has been set up. These are the logics in play. Um, if I'm complicit in it, I'm not worse than anyone else, right? But the question is, do I want something else? Do I imagine something else? And who can I work together to imagine something else and try to put that into place? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good. Um, you know, and so when we think about that history, you know, that divides us, like, well, one of the systems that I want to talk about is um, white supremacy and the entanglement of that that has hindered um, interconnection. Um, mm-hmm. what, what is some of that entanglement? You named a couple things like as it relates mm-hmm. to um, to be Native, the way to prove to be Native was to be anti-Black. Um, mm-hmm. So that is one thing that has caused that. Um, um, the enslavement of, of, of Black bodies um, through, through that participated in that system. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some other ways when you start thinking about even today, how white supremacy has entangled itself um, and hindered interconnection? Well, I think the way that happens is that white supremacy doesn't operate through the same logic. It operates through multiple logics. Mm-hmm. And the way those logics play out can impact the different groups at different times, right? So to give one example, um, so if we look at kind of the theories around anti-Blackness, okay. what they tell us is that under white supremacy, it's not just that you're trying to aspire to whiteness, but you're always running away from blackness. So often our politics are often geared towards proving not, that we're not black. Does that make sense? Like we are more yeah. worthy of, of, of than, mm-hmm. than people who are in the category of black and who could get put in the category of black could change over time and place. Right. Um, mm-hmm. For instance, Miley Arvin speaks about how uh, people in the Pacific retreated, that they were divided between Polynesians and Melanesians. And Melanesians were seen as in the category of blackness that couldn't be saved, but Polynesians were put in the category of closer to whiteness, so right. they could possibly be saved. Does that make sense? Right. But in any case, there's always a group at the very bottom that you're trying to kind of avoid. Um, okay. So therefore, that doesn't just impact the group that's put at the bottom, but you tend to have that logic within your group. So for an example could be, um, well, Native peoples, obviously, people who are black and Native are often put at the very bottom. Uh, in the immigrant rights movement, we see an example of that, where there's a movement that the movement often focuses on um, supporting dreamers, right? People who are the good immigrants, but the political payoff is to say, but we will support deporting criminalized immigrants, those who have, who have, have a criminal record. But criminalized, criminalization is another code for blackness, right? It's basically saying we, don't, we won't accept the immigrants that resemble blackness, we want the immigrants that are closer to whiteness. Mm-hmm. And so that ends up obviously hurting black people, but it also creates a divide within your own community of which part of your community you can dispose of so that the other part of your community can be free. 
So these are just uh, numerous examples. Um, but also, though, when you look at that logic, you can see, though, that how when people are put into the category of being closer to whiteness, that doesn't always operate the same for each group of people. And I think we're seeing that now with COVID, with all the anti-Asian racism going on. And people get confused. Aren't Asians supposed to be model minorities? Well, of course, that category itself is a problem because I think that's a group that has the largest wealth divide, right? So a lot of people are, are not in that category of model minority. They don't benefit from that category. But second of all, even those who are deemed model minorities, what is that saying? It's saying you're, you're closer to whiteness, <laughs> Mm. But that whiteness might make you more acceptable in some cases, but that proximity to whiteness is also what makes you dangerous, mm. right? It makes you a big enough threat that you can be a threat, a, a, for, a permanent foreign threat to the well-being of empire. And that's why we must be at constant war with you. So that's why it's always a recurring thing, right? From Japanese concentration camps to now, the, the, the COVID is almost... 19 is almost seen as an Asian war against empire, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Sora Han put it this way. She said, the United States is not um, at war. The United States is war. Mm-hmm. So that's an example where the racializing logic is operating differently for different communities. So if you put everything in the same box, you may not see how things are different. And then we end up with a strategy that might be good for one group, may not be good for another group. So that's why I think it's kind of always important to look at what are the distinct things going on at a particular moment and then what's the appropriate strategies that we can figure out together that make these links by how things are operating differently in different places. Wow. Yeah, that's good. It's complex. It's so complex when we start looking at this, but I think these are healthy conversations to have because we, you know, as we talk about solidarity, as we talk about deconstructing, as we talk about Mm -hmm. unity, um, unity is not sameness. We understand that, but Mm -hmm. we have to have these conversations because even as the face of America changes and shifts, it doesn't mean that um, the, impact of a racialized society is really changing and shifting. So it's important Mm -hmm. to have these conversations. Um, What is the Mm -hmm. elephant in the room that we typically talk around as we're talking about these um, conversations? You hit a lot of them like already, (laughs) but what are some other elephant um, type, you know, situations? Because one of the things would be the bridge. Um, our mascot, which has no name, is like an elephant. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like you mm-hmm. cannot ignore the elephant in the room. We have to talk about, and we consider the elephant in the room historical context. You know, and mm-hmm. so um, we cannot ignore that. What are some things we typically talk around um, that we need to bring more understanding around and have some honest conversations around it related to this? Well, there's just so many things. I think I mentioned some of them. I think we have to address anti-blackness in all communities of color and how that also is manifested in colorism. Uh Um, I think we have to talk about kind of our complicity in indigenous genocide and our our (laughs) non-questioning of U.S. democracy as the end goal. Like I think from a Christian perspective, we should never be invested in one particular governance system, right? We're invested in a heavenly kingdom, whatever word you might want to use. And that means we must always be critical of not settling for what seems the best we can get instead of saying, what's the best governance system where we can all live. That's not dependent on some people, some people's death. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think also we just need to also be mindful of intersections with other issues like gender. Mm -hmm. I see this a lot in evangelical circles. Like now, occasionally we'll talk about gender, but it's always white women representing gender. (laughs) And it's always men representing race. And there's a lot of things that happen for women of color, like different kinds of racism that are also gendered that we just don't see. Like when we talk about domestic violence, domestic violence isn't just a gender issue, it's also a racial issue. Because it is through gender violence that racism is successful. I mean, if you look at the history of Native peoples, I mean, uh, the, the problem with the colonial project was that many Native communities were not hierarchical and they weren't patriarchal. So they had no reason to accept colonial domination. And that's why colonists insisted on instilling patriarchy in Native communities because they basically said, you know, Native men are not, uh, until Native men treat Native women the way white men treat white women, why are, they're not going to accept these kind of hierarchies. Mm-hmm. So I think bringing patriarchy into communities of color is a way of naturalizing domination, generally speaking. So yeah. I don't think we can do a solve one problem then solve the other problem. Like we can't end racism without ending sexism. Another example I think would be disability. We often don't think about uh, whether or not our events are accessible or, or not, but disability is even bigger than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at kind of the, the, the reasons that justify both racism and sexism, it's usually disability, right? People of color are feeble-minded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People of color are insane. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But what we do is we instead of saying, well, why would you treat somebody with a developmental disability as less than human? Instead, we try to prove that we're not developmentally disabled, right? Instead mm-hmm. of saying, well, people who are not neurotypical should still be treated with respect, we try to say, no, we're not crazy, right? So we basically throw people with disabilities under the bus to prove that our communities are okay, rather than accepting that we should, there's not one normative mind or body that should be treated with respect, but we, whether we all have respect regardless of how our mind and body is. So these are just a few kind of examples of things I think we don't address that we should. <laughs> but yeah. I think uh, the overall, I'd say matrix is that assessing less of an issue, like do we cover this issue? It's more, I would say, let's just accept that none of us got through 500 years of federal colonialist white supremacist shenanigans without <laughs> being extremely messed up. <laughs> right. So, so let's just know we're messed up. And then what is the process by which we can easily get new information to change when we're messed up. And it will come from new areas that I can't even imagine now. There's something really ridiculous I'm doing now that I have no idea about that I'm going to learn about, but how do I have, what is the political practice I have in my organizations and in myself such that when that information comes, I'll be able to hear it quickly and change as needed. No one has to tell you that everything feels like it's been spinning this year. It's hard to figure out the next steps forward when so many things feel unknown. Are you with me? So I want to invite you to be a part of the chance to reset and launch the rest of the year. On August the 15th, I'll be speaking at If Gathers leadership event called If Lead. It's online this year, which means you can tune in from right where you are. And no matter if you're leading toddlers or running a company, This event is for you. We're going to talk about the questions we've all been wrestling with lately. And they are, how do you live out grace and truth? Can you prioritize rest in your calling? How do you hold both joy and disappointment at the same time? 
Do you dream big for the days ahead or just wait for God? At If Lead, we want you to consider what if it's both? What if it's all of it? How do we embrace all these tensions at the same time? We need you to tune in with us on August the 15th. And we don't want you just to watch. We want you to participate, engage. This is our chance to come together as a giant sisterhood of women and make a plan for it. And don't do it alone. Invite some girlfriends, family members over to watch If Lead Together. Tickets are on sale now at If Lead 2020. And they start at just $29. So don't miss it. That's IfLead2020.com. I look forward to you being there with me. We just talked about what, you know, we do believe that solidarity is possible and how we have to have um, the some of the steps that we can take. What are some steps that you've seen that has worked as it relates to moving us more to toward our interconnective um, relationship? What are some things that you're doing um, personally with some of the organizations you're working with and what steps have you seen to be successful in this work? Um, I found what successful it helps is when we kind of collectivize this work rather than individualize it. So for instance, you often see a lot of things, I think that more and more popular in Christian circles about privilege and everyone goes confess their privilege, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I find it very annoying because I find what basically ends up doing is centering the person in with privilege because it's all about their self-reflection. Like, so let's say it's a white person talking about white privilege. They end up being the center of self-reflection and people of color are the foil by which they self-reflect. So I find that this privilege stuff is supposed to be anti-racist, but I think it actually ends up centering rather than decentering it or centering whatever else is being, uh, uh, whether it's gender or whatever else is being put at the center. So I find that also just creates a lot of, people getting anxious all the time because they're like, oh my gosh, I wish I didn't have any privilege so I have to confess anything and so I could go point my finger at everyone else who doesn't have privilege because we start to create kind of a moral authority. Like whoever has less privilege has more, more moral authority. So it ends up, I think, being counterproductive. So what I found helpful is if we start to think of privilege collectively. So rather than everyone confessing their individual prep, uh, privilege, like we look in the group and we say like, Okay, in this group, who's getting invited to speak? Is it only the people with a college education? Right. <laughs> who who are the people who are being associated? Whose name is always out there? Mm-hmm. Right. Who can actually attend the meetings? Like, are we setting up meetings so that some people can ever get get there? Right. So, what are we doing collectively <laughs> that's that's allowing for some voices to have more of a role than others? And then what can we collectively do to change that, right? Like, so maybe if there's one person who always gets invited to speak, maybe they always invite somebody else who's less or well-known to speak with them mm-hmm. so that that person becomes well-known. And we always trade this off. Do we have a training program where people who maybe have a public speaking skills are training everyone else so everyone is comfortable mm-hmm. public speaking, everyone can do it, right? And so how, what practices are we putting in place to reverse uh, this hierarchy of who, who, who is getting more in the group or having more power than others? I find that that, that that creates people, that allows people to be less anxious because they're feeling less like, oh, I'm back by a privilege and more, okay, let's work together and change stuff, right? So it's, <laughs> it, you, you feel more empowered. Like you feel like, hey, this is a cool thing. We're going to build a stronger group because we're going to change the structures that let everyone have a voice. And, we, and I, it's not going to be that I have less of a voice. So 
so that other people have a voice. It's more, we're all going to have a voice. Right. We're all going to work together and really kind of make this a thing where we can all shine. So I find that helpful. Um, and then also I find it helpful when we institutionalize self-critique. Because I think what happens, I know, for instance, is, uh, if you ever, Tasha, have you like, ever organized a conference and everybody hates you afterwards? Or you do, you know what I mean? You do an event. <laughs> yeah. Blood, sweat, and tears. And you're like, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. And everybody's yelling yeah. at you afterwards. And I'm like, you're never doing this again. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you realize that's the nature of the beast. So, so the thing is, how can we get this thing so it doesn't feel so crushing? Uh-huh. And and I feel because it because it feels crushing, then it's harder to actually change. It's hard to even just because you're like, is it true or it's not? Maybe everything's true and I suck and I'm a human, as a human being and I should never do anything again. So it's like, how do we create a structure that we can hear the critique well? Right. So I find it helpful when you institutionalize it. So I can in some groups I've been in, we had a situation where like maybe two times a year or three times a year, we would look at what is an issue where we think we're just not doing well. Like we're getting feedback that we're bad on this issue and we need to do something differently. So we would like maybe pick that issue and then we'd say, okay, what do we need? What one we do kind of assessment? What do we know? Does that make sense? What is our collective knowledge and what do we not know? Like what are our questions? What, what is confusing to us? And then once we have that, okay, well, how can we get this information? Like, who should we connect with? Who can we talk to? What books should we read? What should we check out? <laughs> then we kind of come back and say, what have we learned? Like, what is, what is the collective knowledge that we've gained? Okay. And then based on that, well, what do we need to change? Like, what will we change structurally to address the new information that we've learned? And then that just makes it easier to address critique because it feels less personal and feels like here's a place for it to go, right? Was this conference not accessible? Okay. We need to work on disability justice. We're going to make this our project. We're going to do better. Mm-hmm. And then it feels less crushing and more actually an opportunity, right? It feels like now we have an opportunity to do something better in the future. Yeah. So that's kind of how I see as an overall framework how it becomes more, it becomes easier to, to, to learn from our mistakes and, you know, continue on. Yeah. Being <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly why Be the Bridge will not be sponsored a conference. <laughs> we'll just go to everyone else's conference. We'll host conversations, but not a conference, because I know how that can be. Um, just trying to balance the tension of so many things, you know. Uh, when we think about uh, restorative justice, like what are some things that could be restorative in how we approach the healing process, like as it relates to um, Black people, Native people, Asian American mm-hmm. people? What are some What are some things that can be restorative in how we approach this healing um, process? Well, I operate from more of a transformative justice framework, so. Okay. A transformative justice kind of emerged, well, it emerged from many different strands, but part of it was a, a little bit of a critique of restorative justice yeah. in that it learned the important things of restorative justice is that if there's kind of a crime, it's not just between two individuals, but there's right. been a larger community breakdown that needs to be addressed. And the way to address harm is you don't kick somebody out of that community, right? That makes it less likely that person can be a good person in that community, Right. So you want to keep them in the community 
but you need to have the community involved in, right. in, in addressing the harm that's created. But the transformative justice framework says that's good and all, but that can assume a romanticized notion of community. <laughs> and mm-hmm. where where it often breaks down is on gender violence, right? Like a community is not going to hold somebody accountable if they don't think what the person did was wrong. And in cases of domestic and sexual violence, communities often decide with the perpetrator rather than the person who suffered the harm. And also, you just may not have a community to begin with, right? So right. the transformative justice framework says that we actually have to create communities of accountability. Mm-hmm. And so to make a long story short, kind of the evolutionary thought of transformative justice, at least as how I see it, you start to also see, though, that transformative justice is not just about a process. One, you have to create the communities. It's not just a simple process. You have to create the communities. But to do that, you even have to create kind of a different world. So a lot of times our work is based on how you stop, what do you do after the harm has happened? But what I've learned from other movements is how do you create a different governance system where you stop harming people in the first place? Mm. Right? And that's where things are more effective. And so I've learned that from my own organizing things. Uh, like I was in a situation where the place was completely dysfunctional and nobody thought people could get along. And we were always addressing the conflicts afterwards. But then when we created just a different kind of governance system that was transparent, horizontal, et cetera, I could, and there's many things that have to happen to make this work, right? It's not a simple process. But to make a long story short, once we put those processes in place, the conflict stopped. Like they just didn't ha- we didn't have to resolve any conflicts, so they stopped happening in the first place mm-hmm. because the structure did not allow the conflicts to breed in the same way they could in a more hierarchical situation. This is a problem, I would say, we have with Christian organizations, generally speaking, even progressive ones, because they tend to be very much based on a hierarchical, charismatic person. And this is where you end up with total dysfunctionality. And we don't have the same kind of practice, which I think you can see in early churches, where things are more egalitarian, where there's more shared leadership, more shared accountability that makes it less likely that abuse can happen. Mm -hmm. So to make a long story short, back. So therefore, I think... In, in terms of kind of addressing relationships between people of color, we need different structures that make us become different people, right? We need structures that, that, that kind of require us to think about others, to, to think collectively, to not just think about our own individual interests. And we can't just think those, these things through in our head. And I think that's what we see in Christianity, right? Jesus had the call to be born again because mm-hmm. Jesus is telling us, under 500 years of white supremacy shenanigans, you are so messed up. Like, if we were to end white supremacy right now, we wouldn't recognize ourselves. We're like, who are these people? What are they doing? They're like space aliens because we are so shaped by these forces of oppression. So we are going to be born again into a new world we can't even imagine right now, into new people we can't imagine. But how do we do that? Well, we learn in the early church, you don't just think your way there. You need a practice that helps you get right. there. Right. right. And so when we create these different kinds of collective practices, we start to become different people in the process. Wow. That's good. You see, I told you guys that she was smart and we um, even yeah. learned a new concept. And I we would definitely put this in the notes, um, really the distinction of understanding restorative justice um, and then also transformative justice, uh, what that is and the difference between the two. Thank you for educating us on the differences of that. And I definitely want to learn more about the transformative model um, as you're talking about, because that's, I mean, 
that sounds like what we need more so um, transformative change, you know, Um, so that's good. Um, Can you tell me a little bit um, for, I, you know, I read in the the beginning, I'm a part of it, um, Evangelicals for Justice. Could you um, just talk to us about what is that and what is it about and um, what do we do? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Who knows? Evangelicals for Justice. Um, started amongst, uh, not exclusively, primarily evangelicals of color and women who were like, these shenanigans need to change a bit here, but uh-huh. not just in terms of content, but also methodol- methodologically. So uh-huh. I feel like sometimes you have some stuff going on, you know, with, what, what was the 80, 49% of white evangelicals voting for Trump? And you're like, what? Uh-huh. But but th- th- there can be a way of re- replicating that same approach by saying uh, that's not the right way. This is the right way, right? Like, so you say conservatives, say, this is a biblical approach. If you challenge me, you're not biblical. But progressives can do the same thing and say, no, this is the right way, <laughs> right? right? Whereas there's, but really, like you know, I mean, we need to kind of a spirit of humility that only God really knows the right way. Mm-hmm. And how can we be in a process, you know, a continual process to hear God's word, especially where it may, we may hear it in ways we don't expect it. It may come mm-hmm. from a, a person we would not expect. It may, it may come in, from a place we wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. So how can we have open our ears so, or open our eyes or open our senses um, or whatever, whatever way we can gather kind of new information. So, um, so that's kind of what kind of inspired Evangelical for Justice was to create a space to say, let's, let's be able to discuss these issues. Let's be able to debate, discuss, and, and create a space to just be able to disagree without our heads exploding. Yeah? Right. So that's kind of it. So, so we care, obviously, about justice, but we don't presume the right way to justice. Mm. Does that make sense? That's good. <laughs> That's good because there's, you know, I, I tell um, people all the time in this work that we do at Be the Bridge, I, I always say that we're just one way. We're not the mm-hmm. way. We're not the only way. Um, this is just this is just one way that I feel that God has um, called me to lead in. But there's some other great organizations out there, great leaders that are doing some amazing work in this same justice space. But it doesn't mean the way we're doing it or the way they're doing it is wrong or right. It's just different. You know, and trying to explain mm-hmm. that to people be, so that it so that we see that those of us who have this um, pathway toward justice, that we're just because we, we're doing things in different ways that we don't become enemies, um, mm-hmm. you know, but we are partners in this work um, and we can point people who maybe have um, a better bent for one organization or another. We can share resources. We can um, mm-hmm. support each other. Um, in the work. And so that's the way I definitely see our our role in um, Be the Bridge. We're like an on-ramping. When people recognize, um, you know, the sin and the brokenness of of what's happening specifically with racism and racial disparities and all of that, like they don't, a lot of times they're so overwhelmed, they don't know where to begin. Um, We try Mm -hmm. to give those people, um, you know, that, that platform, that stepping stool to help point them and start educating um, them. And then what happens is once people start understanding A, B, C, D, 
<laughs> then mm-hmm. they can understand L M N O P. You know, um, right, and, yeah. you know, they become a part of you know other organizations that um that you know what what I would say they're a level four, or a level five, or a level six in the work that they're doing. Um, um, but we're still partnering together because we're you know there's this cohesiveness in the in the midst of that. So that's the beauty of um I think the work that we do and, and one of the reasons why I do like evangelicals for justice because it keeps you from being tunnel vision and in your mm-hmm. work and um it helps you to be more inclusive and not exclusive um and um and just you know just some of the things that you're made aware of and you can take part in I think it's a really good vision behind that so um I'm grateful to be a part of that be a part of that yeah. uh, that email group. <laughs> well, I think that when to be a bridge, I think what you're describing is so important too, yeah. because I think when we think about ending oppression, mm. it's not a knowledge issue always. Like I think we think if we had the right information, right. but it's really a spiritual crisis. I remember yes. one mentor yes. said, yes. so when you start doing this work, you think you'll feel better, but it's yeah. the opposite. You'll feel worse because you're moving from a place of certainty to uncertainty. Oh, and so, so it's you're you're embarking on a, a project of creating a world you don't even know where you're going yet. Like you don't even know what it's gonna be like. Right. So you're all you're having to be comfortable with being perpetually uncomfortable. Mm. And I feel like we don't have enough support for that, right? We don't have enough support for how hard that is. We think if we give people enough stats on racial injustice, that's it. It's not because people want to go back to feeling good and comfortable. I mean, right. including myself. Like this is that it's not you don't you never get to a point where you've arrived, right? Like you're, you're always going to want to take a break from just feeling like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing right now. So right. this is where I think Christians should be able to play a particular role in saying, what's the spiritual guidance necessary to live in that perpetual place of discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to, be, to never be totally sure, but be willing to make that commitment to go to a world that we can't quite imagine yet. So I feel like to be a bridge, like, bridges, the continual bridges yeah. to, <laughs> to keep us there and, it, and with the community, right? So it's, we're not just doing this alone too. We have people with us yes. and can, willing to stay on that journey with us, no matter how comfortable, uncomfortable and hard it is. Yeah. So good. So good. Now I like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of that great, like closing um, discussion, but I, I like to dream. And so, and I always dream sometimes of like, okay, how, if, you know, what could the world look like if this happened or how could the world be if I had this or if, if what could be the bridge be if this happened? You know, I like to dream. And a lot of times we don't dream big because we also are thinking about the barriers and the obstacles that prevent us from dreaming. Um, so I want you to just dream um, for a moment with me. Um, if money wasn't an option, okay, there was mm-hmm. money wasn't an option. And there were no like physical like barriers or obstacles. Um, what would you do? What would you well, do? I don't, what would you change? Um, see, I think the work ahead of us doesn't necessarily require money or these things to begin with. So I think that that's, that may be changing our framework, right? That's good. So if you think about the current system we have, right, it's a pyramid, uh-huh. 5% owns 95% of the population. Uh-huh. Um, but and but there's a lot more of us than them, and ultimately okay. even the top five percent is not going to 
do well if it destroys the earth. Right. <laughs> so right. basically, so the catch is really to me is less that we need the money and the guns. It's we need to, to get the 95% mobilized. And how do you do that? That's like mm-hmm. talking to your neighbors. Does it make sense? Like it, it's not necessarily right. a glossy program that needs a foundation grant. Right. It's like can everyone commit to talking to 20 of their neighbors and having it's a conversation good. about I love this. it. <laughs> I love it. Creating these connections. Because we see the biggest movements they're not from the U.S., right? Mm-hmm. They're from poor countries, but they have like hundreds of thousands of people involved creating different governance systems because they've disinvested in thinking the current system has a solution and have invested in, in themselves as having the solution. Mm-hmm. So I think if we reorient that way, then, then we don't necessarily need these things. And we can then be more creative with the resources that we have. Like I think of one example, uh-huh. <laughs> a friend of mine was talking about the Argentina factory movement. And she was talking about, there was a debate about at that point, the government was giving everybody kind of a welfare check and people were debating, should we accept this check? That'll mean we've sold out or should we not? We could use the money. Mm-hmm. And what they did, like that's what the debate you would have in the U S but there, what they did is they took the money and they collectivized it. <laughs> they put mm-hmm. it all in one big pot and then made sure everyone's needs got met. Right. So, Ooh, that so that's kind of, that sounds familiar. Yeah, so what if, yeah, so what if we kind of thought more creatively and collectively? Yeah. We might actually have the resources. And I think we're seeing that now with COVID-19 with the mutual aid networks. We're starting to see we have more than we thought, right? But if mm-hmm. we start to think of it less like I have to meet my individual household's needs, but how can we collect, collectively meet the neighborhood's needs and vice versa? We start to see, wait, collectively, we, we have a lot more together. We just don't even know each other. Right. So. So I personally think in the end, this is where I feel like from indigenous um, systems, we see like it's ultimately about relationality. We have a system that breaks us down into individuals. And when we start to make connections and relationships, that was just in our group, but with the rest of the world, because we realize our group cannot do well if other groups are not doing well. We are indeed all related. When we start operating from that point of relatedness, we don't Mm -hmm. need millions of dollars to do that. I we can actually do, do that now. You know? And then I think back to when you're saying imagination, I think that we also recognize that what colonization does is that it doesn't just take your land and resources, but it does colonize your imagination, mm. right? It makes things seem natural and inevitable, just mm. that you can't imagine another world. So decolonization is about decolonizing the imagination. Mm. Uh, like one colleague, he phrased it like this way. It's kind of our job is to um, think the unthinkable, imagine the unimaginable, and make the impossible a reality. Right? Wow. Think, okay, you got to repeat that again, because that's incredible. <laughs> Say that one more time for me, Andy. I said, our job is to think the unthinkable, imagine the unimaginable, and make the impossible a reality. I love it. That. First of all, that's an excellent way to end um, our time together. Wow. Like, that is incredible. Um, and just what a way to um, just to really acknowledge, just like to make the impossible possible. Uh, and do you know who said that? Oh, Dylan Rodriguez. Um, Dylan Rodriguez. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to definitely look that up. Well, I am so grateful. I, I love the fact that, you know, just in that challenge and like thinking like we need relationships. Like we, you know, we, we have the resources, we have what we need. We just have to think a different way. And I think when you start mm-hmm. thinking about movements, you're so correct. When I think about, um, you know, just, I think about Gandhi, 
You know, mm-hmm. um, if you if you think about Mother Teresa, I mean, so many different people, like some of these movements and things that are happening now. It doesn't take a lot of resources. It doesn't take yeah. money. There is there is capital in relational um, in relationships. Mm-hmm. And people getting exactly. to know each other. And and I mean, I think we learned that when you were talking about people just shared um, what they had. They put, you know, they thought more collectively and they sh- they're sharing what they have. And I mean, we see that in the early church, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, yeah. and, and what they endured and how they had to survive, you know, uh, when the world was pitted against you, you know. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I... I it's it's the upside down kingdom of God, I tell you. And so, um, yeah, exactly. you know, and so it's just amazing. So I'm so grateful to be um, on this journey with you and to be able to navigate um, this justice space with so many incredible people and thought leaders like yourself. Um, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for your commitment, um, you know, to this work. Thank you for using your platform to help educate other people. People, thank you for creating spaces where other people can go to learn from one another and to really reimagine um, what the future could be like. So I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for your leadership and so grateful for your voice in this. Thank you for listening. For more bridge building resources, visit our website at be the bridge.com. 